Well, good morning, Hillcrest. Good to see everybody this morning. Welcome to church. Those of you that are gathered with us here at the Nine Mile Campus, as well as those of you that are worshiping with us at Spanish Trail Campus this morning, we love y'all and hope y'all are having a great time where you are this morning. Let's put our hands together and give praise to God for the greatness of worship this morning. Really is wonderful to have everybody together today, even those of you who are worshiping with us in an online area somewhere. We pray that God will richly bless your life today. For any and all of you who are with us at one of our campuses and our guests, know especially that you're welcome with us. You're among friends, and we pray that you'll take one of those guest registration cards that should be right in front of you and before the morning is out. Don't do it while I'm preaching. Don't do it while I'm preaching. But before the morning is out, complete one of those and then take it to a uh, a welcome center, welcome area, and uh, just know that we love you and uh, we'll have something in return for you doing that, a little gift that you can take with you uh, today. Would you take your Bible and be finding the book of Acts chapter 13 this morning? Acts chapter 13, I'm stoked, I'm excited to begin a brand new series of messages, our fifth such series in our continuing journey uh, through the book of Acts, which we started a couple of years ago. Acts is a very lengthy book, uh, the second of a two-volume work written by a physician named Luke who wrote volume one about the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth from the birth of Christ to his resurrection from the dead. And volume two is the book of Acts, the continuing work of Jesus Christ by his spirit through his apostles, the history of the life, ministry, and missionary activity of the first church, the earliest church in the years, of course, following the ascension of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. This particular series we're going to be calling Sent, as you probably noticed on the sermon bumper that just preceded me because that's what it's about. It's about the church sending missionaries out to engage a lost world. That's what disciples are to be all about. All of us as disciples in one way or another have not only been saved by God, but we've been commissioned by God and sent by God someplace to be a witness for him. Everybody hear me say amen. So I'm not just talking about some super elect, super spiritually uh, minded, well-educated group of people that we call missionaries. If you're alive and breathing, saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are both minister and missionary at the same time. The only difference is where has God sent you? So we're going to look at how God took these earliest disciples and sent them out to make disciples as on-mission believers, making disciples of all nations. That's the primary emphasis of the last half of the book of Acts, which is what we start today, engaging the world as we know it, all people everywhere with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, Hopefully you can tell through my preaching in the book of Acts that it's my personal conviction that Acts is the most exciting book in the Bible. I know there are other books that get a lot of press, but I'm telling you, if you can't get excited about reading the book of Acts, you got wet wood. Uh, The Bible is 
sometimes not difficult to read, other times incredibly challenging. There are some parts of the Bible you better set up straight in a wooden chair at your kitchen table with a pen in hand and a notebook by your side. There are some parts of the Bible I read, I just got to get up and walk around for a while and stare into the sky. The book of Acts is beach reading for Christians. I mean, anybody could pick it up. It's like reading a novel, seeing what God has done in times past. So I think it's the most exciting book in the whole Bible. Oftentimes, we refer to it as the Acts of the Apostles. That's how it's usually headed in most of our English Bibles. But can I say this morning, and perhaps you'll remember, more than being the Acts of the Apostles, it is the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles, because it's the Holy Spirit that's behind and working in and through everything that you read about in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit is the main character. The Holy Spirit is the bride at the wedding. The Holy Spirit is the star of the show when it comes to the book of Acts because without the Holy Spirit, may I say it this morning, the early church would not have had a chance. They would have been snuffed out, stamped out, dispersed. They would have been scattered, and they would have eventually become no more once Jesus had left the scene if it's not for the continuing work of Jesus in and through his disciples, his apostles, by his Holy Spirit. And that's why the first thing that Jesus does before he ascends to go back to the Father in heaven is to give a word of instruction to these remaining disciples not to leave Jerusalem. You remember what he told them? Remain in the city until you have been what? Clothed with power from on high. And then he defines what that power is. Acts 1.8, maybe the most important verse in the book of Acts. Do you remember it? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Power for what? And you shall be my witnesses to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. May we say that verse together out loud, together. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. That verse forms a natural table of contents for the book of Acts. Acts chapters 1 through 7 deal with the witness of the Holy Spirit through the apostles in Jerusalem. Then we turn the page to Acts 8. And Acts chapters 8 through 12 deal with the witness of the Holy Spirit through the apostles and the disciples to Judea and Samaria as the apostles were scattered out of Jerusalem because of persecution stemming from the death and the martyrdom of Stephen. And then Acts chapter 13, where we begin today, begins another turn in the book of Acts, the beginning of a new era as it were, of gospel witness, and that is the witness to the end of the earth or to all the nations, the Gentile world. And it's very important because this intentional outreach to pagan peoples on distant lands in distant shores uh, through what we commonly refer to as the missionary journeys of Paul become one of the most important chapters in the entire 2,000-plus year history 
of the early church. We're going to focus in this series from now all the way up to holiday time on these three important missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. And those three missionary tours, for the most part, are going to start from one of the most important churches in the history of the church age over the last 2,000 years, and that is, of course, the church at Antioch. This is a place that will become ground zero with respect to the outward thrust of the gospel from Jerusalem, from Judea, Samaria, now going to the far-flung nations of the globe. Y'all ready to get started on the journey? Say amen. Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse number one. Let's read the first three verses just to get us going today. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Heavenly Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that the same Holy Spirit who endued this church and these first missionaries with such great power would do even the same for us gathered at Hillcrest today. For we are nothing and our words will mean nothing apart from the supernatural enabling and empowerment of the Holy Spirit of God. So be obviously among us today so we might hear not just from a preacher, but that we might hear straight from the heart of God. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Now, what we have here in this little introduction to the last half of the book of Acts is kind of a strategic shift that takes place in the missionary strategy of the early church. Because what you have is kind of a first here. For the very first time, we have a local Christian church feeling themselves the urgency and the necessity to engage the larger world, the larger Greco-Roman world, uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They feel compelled to stay aggressive and to keep pushing their witness further north and further to the west to people who are unfamiliar, completely unfamiliar, with the name, the person, and the saving work of Jesus Christ. And what we want to get out today is a simple question. How did that happen? I mean, how did this change in strategy actually occur? Well, that's what Luke addresses here in these first three verses in Acts 13. And what I'd like for you to do is notice with me today three distinguishing marks of this particular church at Antioch and why these particular marks of the church at Antioch are important for every church that would consider itself to be an on-mission church. The first thing we notice about this church is that it was a diverse church. Amen. It was made up of all stripes, all kinds, all ages, different kinds of people. A lot of that was due, frankly, to the diversity of the city of Antioch itself. You might remember <clears throat> that up to this point, the church had engaged its world on mission, but because of a different motivation. 
they were kind of forced to take the gospel out of Jerusalem, right? Because persecution was going nuts. Stephen had been incredibly bold, and the patience of the Jewish religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, it just reached its limit with Stephen and his incredibly bold witness and what he communicated about how Christ uh, had lived and died and been raised again and how that altered a proper understanding of the law and the temple and the work of the preaching of the prophets and they just wanted nothing to do with it. So they stoned him to death and then turned their ire outward on much of the larger church in Jerusalem, which was pretty good size at the time, maybe 15, 20,000 in membership there in Jerusalem. And many of them just had to get out. I mean, it was either leave or die or go to jail or be thrown into a dungeon. And so they left. And remember, because of the persecution, the likes of Philip left, and he went into Samaria preaching the gospel. And so now you have this thrust going outward from Jerusalem, first to Judea, Samaria, and Philip is preaching the gospel there to the Samaritans. And eventually the gospel would make its way not only to those Samaritans, but Philip would be led further south to Gaza, and he would preach the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch who then would take the gospel to Ethiopia in Africa, which was a huge swath of Africa at the time. And then you have the gospel continuing to move further north all the way up to Antioch. It had gone to Jews, it had gone to Gentiles, a, Samarit or a, a, a Gentile Roman centurion whose name was Cornelius had received the gospel and he and his entire household had been saved. But eventually it would arrive in Syria where the city of Antioch is, north of what we know today as the land of Israel. And Antioch was a magnificent city <clears throat> back in that day. It's mostly a city of ruins today, ancient ruins. But it was a magnificent city then, of course, known as the Queen of the East, a very cosmopolitan uh, city because it laid at the intersection of important trade routes. It was, an, it was an important military garrison that was stationed there, and it was an important commercial center. And so because of that, man, there was just about every conceivable ethnic group uh, alive at the time in that geographic region living and working and doing their thing there in Antioch. There were native Syrians, there were Arabs, there were Phoenicians, there were North Africans, there were a lot of Jews, some 25,000 Jews uh, there in the city. And so all of those were here. And in Acts chapter 13, we're also introduced not only to the diversity of the church, but even more to the diversity of the leadership of the church. We're introduced to them here, five of them, commonly referred to in the theological literature as the Antioch Five. It sounds like a, a group of thugs, doesn't it? But they're the Antioch Five, as they have become known throughout the years. And uh, they're wonderful people. What a diverse group they were, referred to here as pastors, or prophets rather, prophets and teachers. We'd call them teaching elders probably uh, in our church. If this church at Antioch had a website like ours does and most churches do, there's usually a, a place to click on that says get to know us. You click on get to know us and there's a place there that says staff in leadership and you click on staff in leadership 
And if you do that at Hillcrest, the first picture you see is this incredible face right here. <laughs> Along with all of our other staff at Hillcrest, introducing us to you. Well, if they had had that kind of a web page, these would have been the first five that you would have seen on the list. And not a one of them native to Syria. Every single one of them have been transplanted there. Barnabas being the closest thing to a native Syrian in leadership there at the church. He was from the island of Cyprus. You remember Barnabas, don't you? Amen. That conservative Jew from the island of Cyprus, a Levite by birth, one of the most positive people that you would have ever met, an encourager. We love it every time we see Barnabas showing up in Scripture. He's the one that stood by Saul of Tarsus when Saul was saved, and nobody wanted to have anything to do with him, especially those who were leaders in the Jerusalem church. And yet it was Barnabas took him by the hand and said, let's go. I'm going to stand up for you. It was Barnabas that sold off property and laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet as the church was in its infancy stages. It's Barnabas, as we shall see, that will stand up for John Mark when they are ready to begin that second missionary journey, and Paul doesn't want to take him along. So Barnabas is the most positive person maybe in the whole New Testament, certainly the greatest encourager we find biographically in the New Testament. And he had been there in Antioch sent by the church at Jerusalem back in Acts chapter 11 when the church had taken because of persecution the disciples had scattered. Many of them ended up in Antioch. And of all things, they started preaching the gospel to Gentiles. And that's how this church became so diverse, because the city was diverse. And they weren't playing games when it came to, well, we will preach the gospel to this group, but we will not to this group. No, they just preached the gospel to everybody. And representatives of all of those ethnic groups got saved and they formed the fabric of this church at Antioch, and the J Jerusalem elders couldn't believe what was going on. So they picked Barnabas, not just because he was well-liked, well-respected, but because he was from a Gentile area, mostly being from Cyprus. And so he'd, he'd know how to run interference in that kind of a landscape, and he would know how to properly evaluate whether this was of God or whether it was not. And of course, you know, he went up there and was excited about it, rejoiced, sent word back. The Lord has got his hand all over this movement. And then he ended up staying there and discipling new disciples, the Bible says, for a whole year. Up to this point, 12 months or so, he was helping people in becoming like Christ. That's a good place for an amen. Because that was the mission then. Help these people understand what it means to follow Jesus in full discipleship. So there was Barnabas. But then there were two other leaders named here, probably both of them, one of them for sure, probably the other one from North Africa. The first we're mentioned, or we're, that is mentioned, is Simeon, called Niger. Anybody know what that means? It means black, which probably is a reference to the color of his skin. And so this was a black man, more than likely. And more than likely, that meant he came from the region of North Africa, somewhere around that. Then there's Lucius 
from Cyrene. That's modern day Libya. So we know this is a Libyan. And this man too was probably a darker skinned individual. We know exactly where he's from and he's ascended the ranks and is one of the prophets and teachers there in the church. A fourth leader, particularly interesting to me, is this man named Manan. Luke tells us that he was brought up as a companion to Herod the king, Herod the reigning tetrarch in that part of the world. Herod the Great, who was his father, was uh, the Herod at the time of the birth of the Lord Jesus Christ. This particular Herod that's mentioned here would have been his son, Herod Antipas, who was the Herod at the time of the death of Jesus. This was the same Herod that cut the head of John the Baptist off and presented it on a platter to his wife. And so this was a corrupted king. And yet, here is Manan, somehow unrelated to Herod by blood, but somehow brought up in the same house. The single word, the Bible says here that he was a lifelong friend of Herod. That translates one word in the Greek New Testament that simply means that he was someone raised together with. They may have nursed from the same wet nurse, but he found himself somehow in the court of Herod, raised with Herod Antipas, who would eventually become king, lifetime friends with him. And so here's a man alongside these other guys who had formal training in the court, who had the best of education, wore the finest of clothes. This is a guy that had a custom suit made by a tailor on Savile Row. I mean, he got his clothes made by the best. He'd visited all the great places in the world. And there he is, someone who kind of doesn't belong in that kind of church made up mostly of common folk. <clears throat> and yet, he's right there. And what a, what a contrast. We don't know how he heard the gospel. But you compare him with his lifelong friend, both of them raised in the same home, both of them probably nursed at the same breast, both of them having the same advantages in life, both of them having heard the gospel of Christ in some form or fashion. Herod Antipas, of course, was very fond of John the Baptist. And after he had killed to fulfill the promise that he made while he was in a drunken stupor, he grieved over what he had done. And yet he continued to reject the gospel while this other man raised right alongside him heard the gospel and believed and somehow made his way to this incredibly important and influential church called Antioch to become an instrumental figure, not only in the mission of the church, but in the mission to the larger world, the missionary thrust to the Gentile world. So that's four of them. And then we come to the fifth, Saul of Tarsus in Cilicia, just about 100 miles away from Antioch. Saul of Tarsus, later to become known as the Apostle Paul. And like Barnabas, Saul had been with Barnabas there in Antioch for a year. Y'all remember back in Acts 11 when the church at Jerusalem sent Barnabas to Antioch, find out what's going on, send a report back to us. Barnabas does that, claims it's of God, decides to stay, finds out this thing is bigger than I am. I have the spiritual gift of encouragement. We need somebody here who's got the spiritual gift of leadership and teaching, and I know just the guy. 
And so he leaves, makes the 100-mile journey to Tarsus where he knows Saul has landed and has been there for a good while. He goes and gets him, brings him back to Antioch. And together, the two of them stay for a year, this former enemy of the church. Saul was a Pharisaic zealot. He was saved, you remember, back in Acts 9, while on his way to Syria to a different city, Damascus, to round up believers, to bring them back, to extradite them to Jerusalem so they could stand trial. And if he'd had his way, they would everyone be executed. So Paul has been gone. You remember, he got saved then. But you know how long it had been from the time that Saul of Tarsus had gotten saved till the time we arrive here in Acts chapter 13? You know how long he'd been a born-again follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? About 14 years. 14 years. And we think, man, what in the world has he been doing? Well, you can read a little bit about that because basically he was in, he may not have known it, but he was in a time of development. That's what he was in. He was in a time of personal growth. We would call it discipleship. And may I remind everybody this morning, discipleship does not happen quickly. It's a lifelong endeavor. You are a disciple now. You will be a disciple. If the Lord allows you to live to be 90 years old, you'll still be a disciple. Following Jesus Christ, never having arrived. I love it when I go to conferences. I went to a marriage conference one time in Branson, Missouri. And as I was going into a restroom, one of my deacons at the church I was serving at the time was coming out of the restroom in his mid-70s, been married over 50 years. And I said, Bob, what in the world are you doing here at a marriage conference? And he said, Pastor, you're never too old to learn how to be a better husband. I've never forgotten that. I want to just hug him right there in front of everybody. That's the way we ought to be. You're never too old. You've never arrived. Instead of when the pastor comes to preach a a message about the parable of the prodigal son, you sit there and you think, I've heard 150 sermons on the prodigal son. No, you say, all right, another message on the prodigal son. I wonder what the take's going to be today. Wonder what I'm going to learn today. Have y'all ever had that happen in the Bible? You're reading a passage of Scripture in John 3 that you've read a thousand times in your life, and you run across something, and you think, I've never noticed that before. And God still speaks to you years into your journey. Paul had been wandering around the land of Palestine. He'd been wandering back and forth from Jerusalem. He'd spent three years in Arabia, ten years traipsing around the land, modern land of Israel, Syria, Cilicia, spent a year with Barnabas there helping the church at Antioch get going. And you know what? God knew exactly what he was doing in that man's life. I bet knowing Paul like we know him, this hyper-aggressive, get-it-all-done-yesterday kind of guy where he probably got frustrated waiting around. I don't know why he got saved. Now back in Tarsus where I started, making tents, working with leather goods. And yet God knew what he was doing all the time. God was at work in that man's heart, growing, shaping, developing patience, growing wisdom. May I say this morning, if you're alive and breathing, God is not finished with you yet. God took 80 years to prepare Moses for 40 years of leadership. 
The first two-thirds of his life were preparation for the last one-third of his life. My stars, Jesus lived for 30 years to come to a point where he was ready to minister for three years. And that's exactly the same pattern you see in the Apostle Paul's life. Been at work, God had been in his life 14 years. But you know what God was doing? He was shaping, molding, and developing Saul of Tarsus into Paul the Apostle. And that didn't happen overnight. It took time. So when you find yourself in the land between, wondering, where is God? What's God doing? What's the point of my life? Don't fret and don't regret. Use the time to stay connected to Christ. Read, study, pray, fast, grow deeper in your faith and in your understanding of the Word because a new frontier and maybe even your greatest days are likely just around the corner. Somebody say amen this morning. So this was an incredibly diverse church, and we want to be a diverse church. Y'all know Hillcrest's more diverse now than it's ever been, than it's ever been. And I hope that diversity continues so that we reflect well the diversity of our community. We're not into artificial integration, but we do want to reflect our community well because that's what the early church did. And we ought to desire that because the kingdom is just different than anything else. And when we get to heaven, we're going to find that we're going to be worshiping and serving the Lord forever and ever with people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. Amen. So this is just the warm-up act. If you find that you don't think you're going to like a wonderfully diverse church, you're probably not going to like heaven. Because that's exactly what heaven is going to look like. It's exactly what the church at Antioch looked like. The second thing that we noticed about the church at Antioch is that it was a worshiping church. You say, well, that goes without saying. No, it doesn't. Just because a church has gathered does not mean the church is worshiping. Now, it should always happen, but not every church is necessarily a worshiping church. The church at Antioch, was serious uh, about what they did whenever they came together. I mean, they were, they were serious about what they did Monday through Saturday, but they were serious about what they did when they came together as a people. And the church at Antioch, Luke tells us that it was while they were worshiping, verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, That's just, let's just stop there for a minute. While they were, do you see the connection between the move of God and the worship of God's people? While the people were worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit <clears throat> said, and the Bible says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now, we need to define who the they is while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting because they could refer to the Antioch Five, the leaders. Maybe the leaders were having a little worship service on their own. Or it could refer to they, the larger church that had gathered. The better interpretive uh, dynamic is the last rather than the first. It's the church they're talking about. You know why? Because after Barnabas and Saul got, get back from this first missionary journey in Acts 14, the first thing they're going to do is call the what? The whole church together. 
and they're going to give a report to the whole church. And we're going to have a they here in verse 3 in just a minute, and there's no question that the they in verse 3 refers to the whole church sending them out. So this is a reference. While they, while the church was worshiping the Lord and fast, this is the gathered church at worship. And they've been doing many of the same things that we've done here today. I mean, they would have been singing because a part of worship is to bring psalms and hymns and spiritual songs unto God. They would have collected an offering to meet the ministry needs. That's something that they customarily did on the Lord's Day, the first day of the week, Sunday. They certainly would have been praying as an integral part of worship, seeking the direction of God. And we're also told that they were fasting. Luke goes out of his way to say that they were fasting. And this is where you can lose a Southern Baptist audience faster than anything you preach. This is a notorious, and I'm speaking from personal experience, this is a notoriously challenging spiritual discipline in our day and time where so much of life is just built around food. And we have conditioned our stomachs to eat at certain times of the day, and the stomach goes into full rebellion when you deprive it when the clock strikes. So it's hard we tend to lose our focus. I it, it certainly doesn't happen to me, but it probably does to you. You get irritated, edgy, accused of waking up on the wrong side of the bed, right? But fasting is a discipline that's important because of how it communicates urgency to God. Whenever you fast, you're basically communicating to God, listen, God, nothing is more important to me than you. Nothing's more important getting in the way to me, know what you're doing, what you want out of my life. Or maybe you're fasting because of a crisis in your home and you just need God to intervene. Whatever it is, you make a huge statement to God when you go without for a period of time in order to focus on spiritual things like prayer and other kinds of spiritual things. And that's what <clears throat> this church was doing. They were really getting intense with God because they needed to know what God wanted them to do next. They'd exploded. They were reaching their community, but they, they weren't satisfied. It wasn't enough. There seemed to be something that was missing, and they didn't know what it was. And so they need guidance, and they need direction, and they want to hear it straight from the heart of God. Notice what they did not do that we are prone to do. They didn't form a committee. They didn't appoint a task force. They fell on their faces before God. No consultants called in from Jerusalem. Surprise, surprise. They get serious with God. And the urgency is evidenced by prayer, worship, fasting. And as they do it, what happens? God shows up. The Holy Spirit shows up, and it gives them the direction that they're looking for. Now, we're not told how the Spirit of God spoke. Was it an audible voice? Was it in a tongue of fire? Was it in a whirlwind? Did stuff start flying around the room? Probably not. Maybe. We're not told. I think that it was probably through one of those prophets God gave a word, the prophet spoke, 
the word of God, but they get clarity because the Bible says, it's going to tell us here in verse 3, that they're going to pray and fast some more. So it's not one and done. They hear a word, but then they pray through that word. And that's what happens here. Verse 2, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. That's the church that changes the world. (laughs) The church that changes the world is the one who stays most urgently connected to God. The church that changes the world is the church most dependent on the Spirit of God. Y'all still with me? Amen? This is a great church. We ought to model this church because they were a diverse church. They were a worshiping church, worshiped urgently, fervently. And then finally, we see that the Antioch church was an obedient church. They didn't hear from the Holy Spirit and say, eh, I don't know about that. We'll have to go pull out a calculator. What's this going to cost us? No, they, they were obedient, and they were obedient quickly. And that's the thing about God's Word. God's Word always demands a response from the people who hear it. That's true this morning. I mean, I'm going to call some people today to get right with God. God's Word demands a response. I'm going to call some people today to quit fooling around with God and get serious about serving the Lord. God's Word always demands a response. We'll call everybody today, as this church was called, to be obedient to the Word of God. God's Word always demands a response. I know people at this and every other church going through a crisis in life, in the horns of a dilemma, they've got to make a decision. There's a clear right and wrong according to the Word of God. The question is, you're going to do it. You're just going to do what the Word says. You're going to do what the Spirit leads you to do. Because God's Word always demands a response. And we see one in verse 3. Then after praying and fasting, and you might add parenthetically here, some more. After praying and fasting, some more. They laid their hands on them and sent them off. Laying on of hands is something that's been done in the church ever since this right here. And even before, for that matter, there are instances of setting people apart through the laying on of hands even in the Old Testament of God. But in the church age, it's where you see it right here. They lay on hands. And this is not, most of the time when we do it, we do it in a way to set apart a person for a specific ministry or missionary calling, ordination. This is not ordination. What they're doing by laying on of hands is a symbolic action that indicates solidarity, oneness. It indicates as well that they're setting apart, consecrating the particular people mentioned here, Barnabas and Saul, for a specific God-appointed task. The word that I like to use is commissioning, kind of like we did last week. We have a team today, a short-term mission team in Israel. They're in Bethlehem today. It'd be great to be in Bethlehem today, wouldn't it? I wish I was there with them. But what did we do on the stage last Sunday? We commissioned them. I mean, we we don't all gather together around them. We kind of do it more symbolically. We do it with individual candidates. 
but we kind of do it symbolically every time we have a short-term group here that we are technically sending out to a particular place for a short period of time. We're not laying hands on them literally, but we are laying hands on them symbolically in terms of doing the same thing, identifying with them, affirming them, and commissioning them to go in obedience to be faithful as witnesses to the gospel. So it's kind of a formal endorsement. And this is important. You know why this is important? May I make a statement here? Because it's the local church that sends out missionaries. Not a board, not an agency. You don't even hear those words in the Bible. Everybody tracking with me. The church sends out missionaries because the local church is called to be on mission. In all of his missionary travels that we're going to look at over these next several weeks, not one time was the Apostle Paul ever severed from the local church. Not one time. He always operated connected to the body of Christ. And the full obedience of the church, I'll tell you another thing worth worth noticing here. The church at Antioch sent out their very best. They sent the two big dogs out. Man, I'm telling you, it takes a mature church to send the big dogs out because we want to keep them here. As a pastor, Pushing 25 years into ministry, I've always been pained a little bit when quarter horses come up to me in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ and tell me they've been called and they're going to be leaving the church. My first response is to grab them by the lapels and say, you are going. No. And yet that's a wrong response. Because those kind of people God calls. Not necessarily the most dynamic or the most well-educated. God uses everybody. But most importantly, God's going to call those to big tasks who are the most faithful with the little task over time. Over time. So it shouldn't surprise us. That's happened in our church. We've had strong leader deacons been called the mission field. We've had strong platform pastors called to the mission field. Guys are tough to replace. We've had young people, people in their 20s, called to the mission field as faithful as anybody's ever, they're here every time the doors are open. Faithfully engaged, faithfully involved. And those are the kind of people God calls. He does here with Saul and Barnabas because they were faithful. And it was wise and right for the church to send them out. And it's wise and right for Hillcrest to send them out when God calls their name. You know it's dangerous to get in God's way, don't you? When God comes to me or God sends a person to me and they tell me God has called, what you want to do is embrace them, hug them, and say, God bless you. How can we support you? We send them out when God calls their name. You know why? Because that's what on-mission churches do. That's how you make disciples of all nations. That's how you take the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's the mark of an on-mission church. 
At the very end of the Gospel of John, our Lord Jesus Christ looked at his disciples and he said these words, As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Churches measure success in a lot of ways. Attendance, giving, all kinds of ways. But the Bible would teach us here that Hillcrest should always want to be measured in large part, not simply by how many we can seat, but by how many we send away for the glory of God. May he always help us to be an on-mission church. This is God's word, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.